Our text today is Exodus 19, and uh, we are really reading the prelude to the Ten Commandments at this point. Uh, Israel has come out of Egypt. They have um, made it out of uh, slavery, and they've escaped Pharaoh. And now they're learning a little bit about who this God is who uh, they've signed up to be his people. And uh, so here we are in Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel camped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say uh, to the house of Jacob and tell to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set, them, uh, set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for all the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall uh, touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, 
The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your character, your mission, your word. I pray that you would feed us uh, this morning, um, empower us, send us out, Lord, that we might be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, In the interest of time, I'll try and do this quickly. Uh, but I'll warn you guys that the Lord has been doing a lot in my heart over the last year about mission. And then you all sent me on a mission trip. And then I came back and the next Sunday I got assigned one of the biggest texts in the whole Bible on mission. So get ready. Uh, but let me start with a story first to kind of get us going. Um, so as many of you know, I grew up in Seattle and, uh, Winter sports are big in Seattle, but we didn't really do much skiing in my family. Uh, we, some combination of the fact that we didn't have a lot of money, and my parents just thought that 70 bucks for a lift ticket was ridiculous. Uh, so ne- we never went skiing, but we did spend a lot of time in the snow. Uh, hiking, uh, I did a lot of snow camping in college. Uh, and so, although not a skier, I was well equipped with winter gear. Uh, Fast forward a few years, uh, and I'm in seminary, and uh, I start dating uh, my now lovely wife. And uh, she graduated from seminary before I got there, and so her friends had dispersed all over the country. And they decided that they were going to have a reunion at Whistler in British Columbia, north of Vancouver, which is one of the most premier ski resorts in the world, side of the uh, 2010 Olympic Games. So Susie's going with her friends, and she invites me to come, and I am not about to pass up a chance to go anywhere with my girlfriend and, uh, and meet her friends. And so despite the fact that I don't ski, uh, I went trotting along and got to meet her friends and stayed in the guys' room. Uh, and then the first morning, we come out ready to go skiing, and uh, I'm all dressed up, ready to go rent my skis. And uh, Susie's friends were all skiing experts. So they had the crash helmets and, and the latest kind of fancy ski bib and jackets and their own custom-fit skis. And I come out of my room uh, in my hiking boots and fleece pants uh, with rain pants over them because that's what you wear when you go snow camping uh, and my little Gore-Tex jacket and my hiking cap. And then since I didn't have ski goggles, I figured what would work better than glacier glasses. Because <laughs> this is what you use when you go snow camping. And they protect your eyes from the snow, and so this will work pretty well, I figured, uh, for ski goggles. Uh, but aside from the fact that my wife was completely embarrassed, uh, <laughs> I found out that glacier glasses do not work well for ski goggles. Uh, they fogged up and didn't protect my face uh, so anyway, now I know. 
the point being that ski goggles ha- have a specific use and, and glacier glasses have a specific use, and it's not for skiing. Uh, and it's important to pay attention to what something is for. And I want to ask the question this morning, what is the gospel for? Uh, and I don't know that it's a question that we ask very often. We know that the Lord has saved us, if you're a Christian, uh, by his grace and mercy, not because what we've done, that's the gospel, but what is it for? Uh, around Christmas time, uh, many Christians are in the habit of saying, what's the reason for the season? Because Jesus is the reason for the season at Christmas time. Uh, but I've entitled this sermon, The Reason for the Season, because I want to ask, what's the reason for Jesus? What's the real reason for the season? Why have we been given the salvation that we have? And I want you to see in the text this morning that the reason we've been given the gospel is so that we can participate in God's mission, which we have heard about this morning in a number of texts. His mission is to rescue the poor and redeem the world and bind up what's been broken and that he might become known in every place, because he's good and beautiful, and it is good for people to know him and experience his salvation. Uh, We're going to see this in a couple different ways. The first thing I want you to see, especially since I feel like I've been talking a lot about mission and how we're supposed to be on mission and participate in God's mission, is I want you to see that the gospel, God's message, the gospel, what he's done for us, and his mission, what we're participating in, are not the same thing. Or Tim Keller puts it this way, there's the gospel, and then there's the results of the gospel. And they're related, but they're separate. It's sort of like a good marriage. You have two people, and they're, they're independent people. And they've got their own personalities, and they do different things, but yet somehow they are mystically one unit. Uh, in the gospel, we are saved by God's love because he came and sought us, not because we went and got him, not because we performed. Uh, A friend of mine put it to me this way. He said, you can't be more justified than you are already. Uh, Justification is a fancy Christian term for uh, set right with God, totally free from concern that you, you can't be more okay than you are already. Um, because of what God has done in the gospel. That's the message of Christianity. Gospel is a fancy Christian term for good news. It relates back to, uh, in Greek, when the town crier might come out to the town square and announce some piece of good news. He might say, the king's son has been born. Next Tuesday is a feast. Nobody works. Everybody celebrates. It's good news. That would be a gospel. Uh, in the first century. And so this is our gospel. It's news about what God has done for us definitively in the past. He came towards us uh, when we were not seeking him and uh, saved us uh, from our own darkness with a great salvation. Um, If you think of it in terms of um, identity, that there are, are things that we're all afraid of or concerned about that we're uh, slaves to. In Japan, uh, many people get their identity from their work. They work long, long, long hours, and it's how they get their meaning. And the gospel, this news, says 
You have meaning now because the Father, God himself, has come to seek after you and he is delighted in you right now. And it sets you free in this radical way to say, you know what? Who cares if the boss is disappointed? Because Jesus, I'm in good with Jesus. Or for us here, who, who cares if I totally mess up in the Marine Corps and get dishonorably discharged? Like, I'm not saying it's not a bad thing, but in a gospel perspective, you can really look at that and say, who cares? I have an identity. I have value in the sight of God himself because of what he's done in the gospel. Who cares if my children embarrass me in front of other people and other people start thinking that maybe I'm not the best parent? Well, you know what? I'm not. But God came for me anyway. I am okay. That is the gospel. And God's mission is that because of the gospel, we are set free to go participate in his redeeming action in the world. That's what the gospel is for. And the danger when you talk about God's mission a lot is we start to think, well, I'm not very good at God's mission, uh, so maybe he's not happy. Or he's probably not happy, but if I went and participated in the mission or I fed hungry people or ministered to the poor or went on a mission trip, then he would be okay with me. And that is a confusion between the gospel and God's mission. They are not the same thing. We are set free. You can't be more justified than you are right now. God could not be more pleased and delighted to be in relationship with you than he is at this moment. You participating or not participating in God's mission will not change that. But he did that for the purpose of sending you out into the world on his mission. And you will not lose his love if you don't participate in it, but you will find your own meaning and place in the gospel and your identity as a human being in a whole new way through your participation in his mission. Let's take a look at this in this passage. First, let's see how God blesses his people in the message of the gospel. In this case, um, the Lord has set the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt. You start reading our passage in 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim, and they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped at the wilderness, and there they encamped before the mountain. Does that strike anyone else as an awful lot of repetition about arriving and camping at the mountain? Arriving, they set out, they encamped at the mountain. At the mountain. It's because this is really important. For us, reading Exodus, the plagues are the exciting part, right? That's the part you talk about in Sunday school, in the crossing of the Red Sea. That's, that's the special effects section. But from the standpoint of an Israelite, this moment, this moment right here in this chapter, this is the moment. Because God said to Abraham all the way back in Genesis, someday I'm going to constitute your descendants as a people. And then Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. And then they went into Egypt and, prop- and promptly became slaves. And they had many children, so there's many of them, but they're not really a people, they're slaves. And this is the moment 
where they arrive at the mountain and they are about to become God's people. This passage is July 4th, 1776, for God's people. This is the moment they became a nation. In the beginning of Exodus, Moses is wandering around in the wilderness, and what does God say to him? He says, I'm sending you back to Egypt so that you can bring God's people to me at this mountain. This is the mountain. God has finally brought the people back. And what did Moses constantly say to Pharaoh? Let us go so we can go worship our Lord in the wilderness. So this is it. This is the real deal, the fulfillment. The people have now arrived at the mountain. And the point is that they might enter into relationship with God himself, that he might be their God and they would be his people. This is what I was talking about earlier. This is a picture of the gospel. And this is what he says. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That is our picture of the gospel in this passage. Uh, It wasn't because the Israelites were awesome or organized or the bestest. It's because God decided to work on their behalf, that he went and he got them and he bore them up on eagles' wings. And the whole point is to bring them to himself. And the Ten Commandments, we'll hear about this next week, really is God's way of saying, this is who I am, and I want to have a relationship with you guys. Let's codify the relationship right here, right now. Um, Peter, the Apostle Peter, who was an Israelite, was apparently also passionate about this passage because he alludes to it. He kind of quotes it in 1 Peter chapter 2. And he applies it not just to Israel, but to Gentiles, to everyone like us here uh, and Japanese people who might become Christians to become part of these people. He says, this is uh, 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Then he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the picture of the gospel that God did this on Israel's behalf because he wanted a relationship with them. He wanted to set them free from slavery. And we find out in the New Testament that being set free from slavery is a picture, a beginning step of being set free from what we're really enslaved to, which is our own darkness and sin which is what Christ did on the cross. It's the same picture that Christ himself bore us up on eagle's wings and brought us to himself. And as a result of what he has done, we could not be more justified, more at peace with him than we are already. But why did he do this? And this is what makes this such a huge missions text. It's not that it says, now go out on a mission, but because it puts the whole story of the Bible in the context of God's mission. This is what it says in this passage. Uh, I'll pick up again in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, in other words, here's why I did this. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. 
for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Here's what's going on. In Israel, the priests were the mediators between God and the people. Moses is, in a way, the first one of these because he goes up in the mountain and he hears the word and he brings it back to the people. And the priests will receive the people's prayers and their sacrifices and then they will take them in before God's presence and offer them to God and they'll come back out and communicate that to God's people. The priests have the sort of an intermediary go-between role to represent God to the people. And God is using that analogy. He says, my intent is that the whole nation of you will all become priests between me and the world. In other words, just as the priests function, intermediating between the people of God and God, now all of the people of God are the go-between between God and the world. And the whole reason for God to constitute Israel as a people is to bless them so that they can be a picture of his goodness and justice and mercy and peace and mediate it out, that message to the rest of the world. And if you read through the rest of the Pentateuch, which is filled with laws, many of which are boring and contain a lot of detail, but there's, if you pay attention, there's no way you can get through the laws without noticing that God is constantly throwing in these little asides saying, you are to follow this law because you were slaves and I saved you and you know better because of what I've done for you. Now you therefore care for other people in this way. They're sojourners in your land. You're to treat them well. You're to have a festival. Find people, invite them, bring them in because you know what I did for you. And I want you to share it with those people. Again, Peter takes up the same theme and applies it to the whole church in 1 Peter. Let me read that passage again, 1 Peter 2. This applies to us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Listen to this. Keep your contact among the Gentiles, in in this case, unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's taking the same theme from Exodus and he's applying it to the church saying, this is our mission. Just like Israel was, you have now become a beloved, treasured possession of God's and set free so that you can participate in his mission in the world. Well, how do we do that? That's a whole sermon series by itself. Um, But I want to throw out a couple thoughts. Usually what happens at this point is a Presbyterian minister says, you can participate in God's mission right where you are, in your workplace, in the things that God has called you to. And I'm going to say that in a minute. But before I say that, let me go ahead and say this. If you haven't thought 
about going into the Christian ministry as a missionary or a pastor or a staff person? Why not? You have got to at least ask yourself that question. Now, we're not all called to that, but you've got to ask the question. I might put it this way. The New Testament makes abundantly clear that if you're a believer, you have been given spiritual gifts for the building up of the church. Either the Bible's not true, or you're not a believer, or you have been given gifts. And if your gifts tend towards shepherding and teaching and communicating the gospel, you are called to the ministry. That's how you know. And uh, it is a wonderful thing to see people among us come up and become ministers uh, and staff people and missionaries, men and women. Uh, It's something we should uh, pray for and long for, and it's thrilling for us, even though I have not gotten to previously meet Matt and Gina, that they were here, part of our community, and they've received the call, and they're out there participating in the mission. Uh, And I want you to at least ask the question, is the Lord maybe calling you to do that? Now, let me go back into my little Presbyterian robe. You also are participating in the mission, in the place where you are, in your workplace. Uh, And even just by doing your job well, if you're in the military, you're protecting our country, that's part of God's mission. Uh, If you are an architect designing buildings to keep people safe and clothed, that's part of God's mission. So I want to see all of that as part of what we are participating in. But to know that you're doing that because God cares about it and he cares about the world, I think, puts it in a whole new light. Uh, And the final thing I'll say is just to touch on what we talked about in Japan, about relational contact time. That uh, it's not... I'm not a fan of the view that God has you in the workplace just so you can communicate the gospel to the people around you. Um, He has you there to work and participate in his mission through work. But there's still a role for you to build up relationships with the non-Christians around you that you work with and live with and bump shoulders with. And uh, the Lord gave our team a special chance to see what can happen when we care and exercise our freedom to care for other people around us who are not Christians and build relationships with them. Things happen, and it smells awesome. Uh, And it's something I'm excited about happening here, and I want to challenge you to think more and more. Why has God given you this salvation? Where are the places for you to participate in, in ministry, in your work, in the people around you? Why is it that God gave you all this love, and what can you be doing with it? Um, This is my second finally, but finally, I think the great challenge for most of us, including myself, is fear of change. Um, That to reach out in a new way is stressful and sometimes embarrassing, doesn't always go well. It's certainly uncomfortable. Um, Stepping out for the first time is uncomfortable. Having new people who aren't quite sure about the gospel in our community, that's uncomfortable. But in many ways, the gospel is uncomfortable. And there's a joy to be found out in the comfort. Um, The Lord has really been working in my own life. I keep talking 
up here about how we're to sort of trust him in the middle of chaos. And, and then the day I came back from Japan, I found out that our owner sold our house. Welcome to chaos, Nathaniel. Uh, so this week has been a ridiculous week for me, but it's been a chance for me to begin practicing what I preach and trusting in the Lord in the middle of chaos and having no idea where we're going to live. Uh, and he's going to take care of us. We'll be fine. And the same thing is true of us and our community. Um, a friend of mine shared with me this quote this last week that's way too good to pass up. Um, I didn't get the exact words, but I still got to paraphrase it because I, I can't let it go. It's from a former director of the CIA. And he said that all organizations, businesses, families, every structure of people has an inherent tendency towards self-preservation and therefore resistance to change and therefore death. Uh, And I think the Lord is calling us in small and large ways. I know he's calling me more and more to be able to live comfortably in a little bit more chaos than I'm quite comfortable with and to see what he might do on our behalf, on his behalf, on behalf of the world and his mission, if we trust him, that he's given us this goodness for a reason. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your mission, I think. I pray that you would bring me more and more to a place where I could be overwhelmed with thankfulness for it, where we all could be. Lord, I pray that you might bless us with more new Christians in our fellowships, in our community, in this place, in this room, on these mornings, Lord. Give us a taste to see what your mission looks like more and more. Lord, thank you for what you've given us in the gospel. We love you. Hold us tight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.